I make fast cars for very rich people. We're looking at things that will tell you if you are in danger from threats, missiles and that kind of stuff. I'm going to be joining Airbus Defence and Space as a robotic systems engineer. My role involves designing the electrical systems for large construction sites. I was doing it all uh, and I experienced it all. If you listen to those engineers and thought, I could do that, then you're in the right place. Welcome to I Could Do That, a podcast by Silver Fox and the IET, asking engineers what makes them tick. Hello and welcome to the I Could Do That podcast. I'm your host, Alex. I am an electrical engineer, graduated from the University of Bath back in 2018. It seems like ages ago now. And alongside me today, I have Joe Hart. Joe, do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, Yeah, so hi Alex, thank you for having me on. My name is Joe, I am a fire engineer, so I'm director of Delta Fire Engineering and I'm also a part-time lecturer in fire engineering at the University of Central Lancashire. Brilliant. Well, let's start with the obvious. Um, Did you always want to be a fire engineer? Uh, I suppose that is the obvious, isn't it? Um, And it's an obvious answer because, well, it's no, Um, not particularly. Didn't even know what it was, as most people still don't. I struggle sometimes and I teach it. Um, it's a bit of an odd field, it's a very niche field that sits within engineering and I didn't fully understand what it was until I was looking for a degree. Um, so I did a degree in fire engineering at the University of Central Lancashire uh, a good few years ago. I was looking for a degree that sort of covered lots of different fields because I wasn't sure where I wanted to go and that's something that fire does very well. It's a mix of lots of fields, uh, you cover structural engineering, mechanical, biology, chemistry, physics, psychology, law. Mm. All these different things so i picked it because it was interesting and i ended up kind of not really leaving in actual fact i've ended up going back to now lecture and teach the same course i studied uh 10 years ago or something like that so i've never really left preston where i teach um but the field is always um i ended up working in fire engineering as a graduate uh, working for a few years and i've now set up my own company so i fell into it completely by accident and when i talk to people who are fire engineers i very rarely get the answer yes when i chose my a levels I chose them so I could study fire engineering. I did my degree and then I became a fire engineer. There's very few people out there that do that in in the specific field. Even students I talk to now, most of them have ended up there almost by accident, many of them. Um, often for similar reasons to me. You want to study a bit of everything. You put all these things together and you end up with fire engineering. Okay. So as an electrical engineer, I get, oh, you must be an electrician quite a lot. Do you get, are you a fireman quite a lot? Yeah, the one I always get is, um, can you come and speak at my school and can you bring a fire engine with you? Which, Mm. I don't have a fire engine, I can speak at a school. Or people (laughs) say, can you come and fit um, smoke detectors for me? They think it's kind of installation. And often people, because when you look around your home, the thing you often see for fire safety is a smoke detector in your living room and a heat detector in your kitchen. People don't Mm. think about the design that sits behind it. And actually, that is fire engineering. So it's a discipline of really designing. I work a lot with architects. So when we're getting buildings through all the regulatory systems, we're designing kind of every part of the building. And fire is one of those disciplines that actually you come in very early in the design Mm. because there are things to do with fire engineering that are implicit in things like the footprint of the building. You know, how close are we to a fire service access road? How far are we from adjacent buildings? So we have to have that input very early. But then all the way through the design and even into an occupied building, we then go in and we start looking at things like doors that are wedged open that are on compartment lines and how a fire, the firefighters are going to come in and lay hose throughout the building. So um, people often think it's it's siloed, but actually fire engineering as a discipline is, is really broad. 
uh, and you end up getting involved in all sorts of different projects. I've worked on the Shard. Uh, I've done uh, some modeling there for some of the smoke control systems. And then I've worked on recently a two-bedroom uh, two dwelling house in Chorley. So there's kind of a real broad range there and very different challenges in each of those. There's not many similarities between a two-bed semi in Chorley and a 300-meter tall building like the Shard. <laughs> um, but that's some similarities, though, to be honest, um, remarkably. So your job, is it effectively architecting fire defense systems? Is that a fair summary? Yeah, so a kind of typical project for a fire engineer, a typical project I would work on, would be working in a design team on the design of a new build um, property. And we would be working with the architect mainly, but also all the other disciplines to design things into that building. So that if there is a fire, we first of all, the first priority is protection of life. So people can get out of that building. Secondly, property protection. So we don't want every building to burn down regardless of if people get out and also to protect adjacent surroundings. So we try to limit fire spread to buildings. And there's lots of different strategies we can do for that. And it actually strategy is the right word. We call it a fire strategy. So it's kind of high level things we put in. So we might, to protect that life safety element, make sure we've got a smoke alarm system in there. So if there is a fire, people are alerted, they can get out. Mm. And then we need to look at how do they get out of the building? So do we have stairs? Is it upper floors? How many stairs then do we have? And how are they protected? Are we putting in some kind of ventilation to prevent smoke getting in there? I'll work with the electrical engineer in that case to work out how we can get power to maybe a fan at the head of the stair or even mm. a pressurize it. Then we'll kind of work through how a fire would develop. So if the fire, let's say everybody gets out of the building, which we obviously hope, how do we then contain the fire so that it doesn't spread beyond the compartment of origin? So let's say if we had a very, very small fire in the shard, I use as an example, what we don't want to do is spread that fire over multiple floors because the damage there is potentially mm. massive, major, really costly. So then we start looking at containing the fire. And then once the fire brigade arrive on site, or the fire service, we have strategies that we write for operational firefighting. So we put things in the building so that the fire service can come and put the fire out, rescue people if they have to, but we don't design for that. We try to make sure people get out before the fire service arrive, and then we can get the building back up and running. So it's strategy is definitely the right word. It's this high level series of measures that we put in place to, um, to limit the effects of fire and in fact, limit the likelihood of, mm. of a fire happening. So you mentioned your lecturer at uh, the University of Central Lancashire. What led you to get in there? So, so I, I studied at the University of Central Lancashire. I did my degree there. And then I went off and became an engineer. And I've now gone back to teach the course that I sat. And I do that part time. I do sort of two days, three days consulting and then three days lecturing as well. The thing that led me back to it was this idea of taking the uh, things that I'd learned in industry and bringing them into academia, which I thought was very interesting. There is often a slight disconnect between academia and industry. Mm. And there's sort of no reason for that to be the case. It's just people work in different fields. And I really wanted to bring the two fields together uh, as best I could. So the story I tell, and I tell this to students when they arrive, is when I got my first job, I am from up north. I'm from Yorkshire, not Lancashire over here on the wrong side of the Pennines oh, at the minute. Yeah, I was, was going to say, I bet they love that. Yeah, yeah. Just here to infiltrate the tea supply. And get, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but I moved down to London for my first job. So I moved down to London, super excited because London's cool and I thought I'll be here for a few years. Mm. And I turned to my first job and the chap that ran the business, he was director and I was what, the first engineer they had. Really lovely chap, great company. 
and he gave me my very first project. And it was, of those three things I talked about, it was the third one we were designing, trying to prevent fire spread between buildings. Hmm. Uh, and it was in East London, so it was a built up area and we were designing a school. So what I had to do was say how far from adjacent buildings that new school building had to be to prevent fire from spreading. And there's certain things you can do. You can you run a load of calculations. You work out kind of the internal compartment temperatures, measure that across the distance to adjacent buildings, and say either we need to move the building further away, mm. or we need to do something to the facade. We might fire protect it, fire rate the glazing to prevent fire from spreading. And I understood that. Having been a student, I'd studied these principles. I knew how radiation worked. I knew about incident heat flux, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But he gave me this piece of work and he gave me a piece of uh, guidance. He said, because it's timber frame, you'll have to use this specific reference. And I looked at him and I said, I've never heard of that book. It's just not something I've ever come across. And the, the chap said to me something that has always stuck with me. And if I spoke to him now, he probably wouldn't remember. And when I say it to people, they say, so, so what? But he said, what are they teaching you on this degree? And I thought, what do you mean? What are they teaching me on this, this degree? Um, but he said, why do you not know what this is? And I realized then what I'd learned was all the theory. What I hadn't learned in my degree was the last 10%, which mm -hmm. is when I actually turn up to a meeting, how do I apply it? Because of course, once I started working through that guidebook, I understood it entirely. Mm -hmm. It was talking about separation distances and reducing compartment temperatures to prevent fire spread. I got the principle. I'd never learned the other bit. And it took me six months as a graduate to do that. So fast forward a few years. I get this job at the university. I was actually coming back to the university to do my own PhD, but I took a job doing some lecturing. And everything I now do is that last 10%, which is the theory you learn, which could be quite intense theory. What I do is I just relate it to industry. And I have a real advantage there because all of my teaching is projects that I'm working on. So I have this kind of constant flow of new work that I'm doing and I can talk about. So I can, I can always say, actually, this thing I'm teaching you, I did last week on a job, let's discuss that. So that's really what led me back to it. It was about connecting industry and academia. And it was going back to that one sentence somebody said to me once that they won't remember um, because they were quite right. Because him as a director hiring me wanted somebody who had a degree and was ready to go. As it happened, it took me a day to read this book I'd never heard of. So I now give students that book and mm. many other books and say, this is what you do. We're not teaching you this because it's a theory and you're never going to use it. This is where you apply it. So I'm really passionate about that and students really engage with that. It's really nice to see them do that. A lot of my teaching is in the later years. I teach um, in the first year, one module, second year, two modules. And then in the final year of masters, I teach a lot more mm. because what I do is I say that thing you learned in year one that you learned for the exam and forgot, actually, you need to get your notes out again because this is where I would use it on a real project. Yeah. So it's a really nice way of bringing it together in the final years of the degree to apply it and hopefully I mean my aim is my students should go in and be six months ahead of a grad where I was a few years ago where I needed six months to appreciate everything in the industry I want them to get promoted six months quicker and to turn up on day one of their jobs and hit the ground running straight away so yeah. that's my aim really and that's why I connect the two or try to connect the two um you sit in a somewhat unique position still working in the industry and being a lecturer what do you think the biggest challenges that fire engineering is facing i mean fire fire engineering has has had a turbulent few years it um since the really notable fire at 
the Grenfell Tower in London mm. in, in 2017, and I was working in London at the time. Um, the industry has changed a lot. There have been lots of regulatory changes. There have been changes to the way that people work and design and, and build buildings, and rightly so, of course, there has to be. And that's continuing. So we've just had some new guidance issued a couple of months ago, which is coming in in December. We've got new laws coming in in, in January of next year. So there is this kind of um, fallout from that fire where we're getting lots of change coming in the industry. And you can't predict that particularly well because there is new guidance coming all the time. So that's one thing that is being dealt with um, at the moment. For example, I teach a law module and it's for the first year students and I teach them the building regulations and the regulations we'd use for fire safety management and risk assessment of buildings. And I'm teaching that on a block in January of next year. Mm. And I'm not gonna write it until December because I don't quite know what the law is gonna be in January yet. Yeah. Um, if I write it now, I'll have to redo it in December. So there's lots of change going on in fire and vast majority of it is good change. There's some of it a bit reactive and some of it not quite going far enough in my opinion, but um, lots of change there. Silverfox proudly supports engineers with all their cable, wire and pipe labelling requirements. The Fox in a Box thermal printer can print a whole range of thermal labels with one software, one printer and one ribbon, saving loads of time for the engineers out there in the field. For more information, contact sales at silverfox.co.uk or call on plus four four oh one seven oh seven three seven three seven two seven. I've got one more question. Um, what's your what has been your top strategy for success you're obviously you've got your consultancy you've done your phd um you're now a lecturer how have you got there i should say i'm working on my phd oh, sorry. if i say i've got it someone will call me up afterwards and say uh, sorry soon to be dr <laughs> yeah. joe hart um potentially then then people might stop confusing me with a footballer Who yeah knows? <laughs> Um, strategy for success. I, I I suppose the first the first thing to do in there is to define success because success for one person is very different for another. And in fact, success for me now is different to what it was five years ago. Mm. Even a bit further back, success for me would have been finishing my degree, getting a job. Success for me now is very very different because I've now I own a business and I've got other things that I'm doing. The the strategy though probably hasn't changed, which is something that I, I always do and, and say, and again, I teach a, a module about project management and I cover this sort of thing. The thing that I always have to do is have the goal, the ultimate goal for anything I'm doing. And that goal doesn't change. So if it's the PhD, for example, the goal is to get a PhD and publish a certain amount of, of research with that. Mm. Um, if it's with the business, it's to get a certain amount of turnover by a certain date. And that goal never changes what does change is how you get to that goal i think that you mm. have to i'm i'm a very organized person and i plan a lot you know and i kind of decide how i'm going to get to that goal but you have to be adaptable and because some things might change along the way and you have to be willing to change that but don't change the goal and i'm quite strict with that if if i start off a project or a piece of work whatever it is if i can't define the goal to be in a few words and very very precise i probably don't fully understand the challenge or the problem that i'm trying to do yeah. Um, and I was talking to somebody about this the other day, funnily enough, because I did a, I mean, it's a weird example. It's unrelated to engineering, but it, it exemplifies it, that I did um, a run, a 10K run over the summer. And I trained for it for a little while, and I wanted to do it in under 60 minutes. Now, yeah. to run a 10K wasn't a goal. To run the 10K in 60 minutes was the goal. Mm. As it happened, 
the 10K was in London on the hottest day of the year, 37 degrees. So there was no way I was going to do it. Yeah. But what I didn't say to myself was, do you know what? Because it's sunny, I'm going to change the goal. Because if you say to yourself, I'm going to change ultimately what I'm going to do, just everything's a win, isn't it? Because you'll just yeah. change it the day before. I'd have changed it halfway through the run and said, do you know what? Because it's hot and I'm a bit thirsty, I'll just say 70 minutes, not 60 minutes. Yeah. And in training for that, in fact, I got injured. My, I injured my foot. So I couldn't stick to the exact plan I wanted to do. I had to change my plan, but I never changed the goal. Even when I turned up and they said, the organizer said, you're never going to do your personal best here because it, it's too hot. Exactly the same with anything else. If, um, if you say to yourself, here's my goal, but if I get there and I'm not quite there, I'm going to change it and call it a win yeah. anyway. That's not really, it's not really my definition of success, I don't think. I think it's important to define the goal very early on, have a plan to get there, accept that along the way that plan probably will change. There are very few mm. things that you can plan out strategically with certain checkpoints and that never changes but always have that goal in mind. So I've got every every day and every week I write to-do lists. Well, every day I write my own to-do list. Every week my wife writes me a to-do list of things to do. <laughs> but then I have those three, six, 12-month goals that don't change. Yeah. The daily and weekly ones might change because I might end up doing something else, get distracted. But the thing that I'm going to do in six months, the thing that I'm going to do next June, that's not going to change. I don't know how I'm going to do it yet, but that is definitely going to happen. Yeah, I actually read an interesting article yesterday funny enough about people who set their people who come out of school and say i'm gonna i'm gonna be a millionaire very rarely become millionaires it's the people it's the people who say okay i want to be a millionaire but that's not the goal the goal is to start my own business to go and increase turnover to buy 20 percent every year over the next five years and then then I'll be my million. Then I'll be the millionaire that I wanted to be, but the people who come out and go, yeah, I'm going to be a millionaire. They don't have they don't have a strategy. They don't have measurable goals to get there. They just have this overarching belief that they're going to do it. Absolutely, and actually, measurable is is a really key word. You've got to be able to quantify it because how do you quantify being a millionaire? Does that mean you could go to the bank and take a million pounds out in cash, or does that mean you've got a million pounds of assets? Or does that mean that your business is worth a million pounds? Because my business isn't worth a million pounds, but I know that if I had a million pounds in the business, that doesn't mean I have that amount of money. It means the business does. And then, you know, theoretically, I give that to staff and things like, that's difficult to quantify being a millionaire. Does that mm. mean that you get all your assets, sell them and look at your bank balance? Whereas the other example you gave was set up a business. I can quantify that. It's when you go to a company's house and register it and you get an yeah. incorporation number. That's the quantifiable goal. And you can stick a date on that. You can say, I want to have my own business by the time I'm 25 mm. or by the time I'm, you know, the day after I graduate, I'm going to incorporate my business. I know loads of people that do that and have done that. People I was at school with, two mates specifically, the day they graduated, the day after they incorporated their business because mm. that was their goal. They said, once I've done the degree, the next thing, go out on my own. Yeah. Um, I think that's that's all the questions. So I'll just say... Thank you very much to Almost Doctor uh, Joe Hart. It's honestly been absolutely fascinating. Brilliant. Well, thank you, Alex. Thank you for inviting me and uh, listening to me for the last, it wasn't three hours, was it? But listening to me for the last few minutes. It's been a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you very much. So there you have it. The end of the first episode of I Could Do That, a podcast produced by Silver Fox Limited and the IET. If you're an engineer currently working on a project and require support with your cabling and equipment labelling, 
please get in touch with one of the Silver Fox team on sales at silverfox.co.uk.